brand new store just opened. Sorry for all the announcements. Are you glad the announcements are done? Say amen. Man, we can almost say amen and go home after that. I tell you what. <laughs> anyway, a brand new store just opened in New York that sells husbands. Joyce Meyer told this joke, and uh, so I'm going to steal it from her. Somebody sent it to me, and I just thought it was too good not to share. So anyway, a store just opened in New York that sells husbands. When, we, when women go to choose a husband, they have to follow the instructions that are at the entrance. The rules are you may visit each floor only once, and once you pass the floor, you cannot return to the floor. You're done. There are six floors, and the value of the products, the value of the men, the husbands, increase as you ascend the flights. Choose any item from the particular floor or go up to the next floor. It's your choice. You can't go back down. So a woman goes to the husband's store to find herself a husband. She gets to the first floor, and the first floor sign reads, floor number one, these men have jobs. She decides to keep going. The second floor sign says, floor two, these men have jobs and love kids. The third floor sign reads, floor three, these men have jobs, love kids, and are extremely good looking. Wow, she thinks, this is getting better and better. So she decides to keep going. She goes to the fourth floor, and the sign at the fourth floor reads, floor number four, these men have jobs, they love kids, they're extremely good looking, and they help with the housework. Oh, mercy me, she says, I can hardly stand it, but I just have to keep going. So she goes to the fifth floor, and the sign reads, floor five, these men have jobs, love kids, are extremely good looking, help with the housework, and have a strong romantic streak. This is the floor I was on when Kyla picked me up. <laughs> I didn't mean that as a joke. I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> she goes to the... Uh, so she's, she's tempted to stay on the fifth floor. Boy, that sounds too good to be true, but instead she goes, I, I got to see what's on the sixth floor. I got to go up, I got to go up to the next floor. And so she gets up to the sixth floor and the sign reads, floor six, you are visitor number 31,456,012 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely as proof that women are impossible to please. Amen. <laughs> and there you have it. Hey, that's from Joyce Meyer, so ladies, you can be mad at her, not me. But just so my wife knows, I don't like that joke. <laughs> well, anyway, let's get started. If you have your Bible or Bible app, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 13 and verse number 36. Acts chapter 13 and verse 36. We're in week two of our series that we started a couple weeks ago called Set Free. If you missed week one of that series called Greater Is He, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sometime. When you have a moment, it's online because we laid a foundation in that message and we're going to be building upon that. Today's message, I'm actually going to probably teach in two parts, maybe even three because there's so much information here. I just couldn't cover it in, in one message. So here we go, unless I had you here till three and I know that you don't want that. So Acts chapter 13 and verse 36. Here's what it says. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. He's talking about Jesus. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which 
you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Verse 40, beware therefore, I want you to take note of those two words, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. I'm calling this message this morning, Believer, Beware. Father, for the next few moments, I ask that you would give me the mind of Christ. God, that you would help me to communicate this message, this important truth in a way that is easily understood so that we can leave this place, we can apply it, and we can use it to change our lives. God, I just want to thank you today, Lord. Unless you anoint me, these words will be empty. They will fall flat. But if you anoint me, God, they will go forth and accomplish what you have set them to accomplish. And so, God, I thank you in advance for what, not only for already what you've done in this place, but for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is on his first missionary journey, and he's, he's traveling from city to city preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He comes to a town called Antioch of Pisidia, which is a city in south-central south Asia Minor. It's present-day Turkey, if you understand the area over there, just north of the Mediterranean Sea. Here's a map that will show you Paul's first missionary journey. It's kind of hard to see, but it'll kind of give you an idea. Antioch of Pisidia is on the very far north. I know you can't read it, but it's on the very far north of that, so it gives you an idea about where he is when he's preaching this message. When Paul arrives in Antioch, he starts to preach in the streets like he typically would do, and a large, a large crowd gathered to hear him. In verse 16, he says this, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So he specifically addre is addressing believers here. Just to clarify, these are people that believe in God, but they don't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Both Jews and Gentile are in this crowd. But he's addressing people that believe in God or say they believe in God. Paul says, those of you that fear God, I need you to listen to me. He then gives them a message about Jesus as promised Messiah, a sermon if you will. And then he ends his message with a very strong caution. Verse 40 again. Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. After he says this, he quotes from the book of Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5, which is in the Old Testament, which Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. So in summary, to simplify this, this is what Paul is saying to the crowd. Look, guys, you have been waiting for, you have been preaching the promise of the Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah you have been longing for. He died on the cross for your sins. However, you are having difficulty believing it. Paul says you have been blinded to the truth, but why have they been blinded to the truth? Two weeks ago when we started this series, I showed you this chart. You might remember it. Recently, a study was done that showed currently only 41% of lead pastors have a biblical worldview. Basically, only 41%, less than 50% of pastors now believe the Bible in its entirety. Six out of ten pastors here in America no longer believe the Bible to be the final authority. 
And it goes down from there. Associate pastors, 28%. Teaching pastors, 13%. Nine out of 10 teaching pastors teaching the Bible don't believe it. They've been blinded to the truth. This means today in America, you have the very high chance to sit in a church service or more than likely watch something online in the name of God and the person teaching it doesn't even believe the word of God. That's scary. Because, because they have rejected truth, what you'll see them do is they will twist truth to fit their narrative. Do you see why you can't believe everything you watch or read on the internet? Here's a newsflash. Not everything you read on the internet is going to be true. <laughs> 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 says this. Beloved, talking to all of us, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many, not some, not few, many false prophets have gone out into the world. It says that we are supposed to test the spirits. Well, how do we do that? Jesus tells us, by looking at the fruit they produce. This is what Jesus tells us to do. We will know a tree by its fruit. And you can't hide the bad fruit. You can for a time, but eventually it comes out. It really is that easy. But what we're doing is we're following anyone that quotes Scripture and we're ignoring the fruit. As long as their message lines up with mine, we're good. I, there's a, I'm not going to say his name, but I know that recently, I know I, I'm pretty confident some of you probably follow him. There's a pastor in the South that, that reach it recently he's kind of come under a lot of scrutiny and so forth, and he blames it on, you know, the enemies attacking and so forth and so on. But uh, very publicly, he stood before his people and, um, and said, if you're with a, a certain political party, you are basically a demon and... and he doesn't want you in the church, and, and you need to leave his church. And if you're with this political party, I want no part of you. And there's, he's, there's a lot of anger. And so you, you look at that and you say, okay, that's the message that's being spoken. Is there truth to that? Well, what's the fruit? It goes, you got to look at fruit. There's a, in his message, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hatred. Is that godly fruit? And so I, you look at that and it's like, so you, we are to judge fruit. Now that doesn't mean that we're to judge the person if they have bad fruit. We see they have bad fruit. We're simply not going to trust them as an influence in our lives. You can still love them. You should love them. You should still respect them. But you're not going to follow them. Does that make sense? Okay. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Basically, what he's saying is, only follow me as I'm following Christ and I stand for the truth. If I ever leave that path, if you ever see fruit in my life that I'm not following that path anymore, then guess what? You better not follow me anymore. That's what Paul's telling us. You better not listen to me anymore. I should not be an influence in your life anymore. Christ is the one that you follow. And so I'm trying to help you here because you, shouldn't, you don't need to come to the pastor and say, hey, what do you think about such and such? You should be able to look at such and such and say, what's, what's their fruit? What do I see? And then that should tell you, that should answer the question for you. So more and more we're seeing people blinded to the truth and because of that they're walking in bondage. They put a smile on their face when they're on the stage or when they're on camera, but when you get them alone, you'll see that they are truly miserable. Why is that? 
because they're not free. Only truth will set you free. But why are so many people blinded? I'm talking good Christian, good Christian people, good people. They're blinded. Remember Paul when he says this, believer beware, he's talking to the, he's talking to the believer. He's talking to the believer. To get this answer, we have to go back to the book of Habakkuk and understand the context of what Paul was quoting. When he says, believer beware, and he goes back and quotes Habakkuk, we have to understand the context of what he was quoting. You see, those in the crowd listening that day, they would have known more than likely the context of what Paul was quoting, so he didn't have to explain it any further. Most of us today, however, we don't understand the context, so it's easy for us to read over an important scripture like this and just say, oh, well, that's nice. How cool is that? But this is truly remarkable. Now watch this. We're going to read the surrounding verses behind what Paul quotes, and then we're going to circle back and we're going to break it down. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now, this is what Paul quotes, we're at verse 5. Look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Now watch this, this is God speaking here. You, the, Habakkuk was, was speaking, he's, he's doing his prayer, now God is, is responding. Verse 6, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nat- nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. That's what I'm going to focus on today, more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like the sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds, and they seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Okay, let's break this down. Habakkuk chapter 1 begins by him asking God a question. We see this in verses 1 through 4. At this time in history, the nation in which he lived in was a complete mess. He's crying out to God, heaven is silent. There's so much evil in his culture, he's crying out to God and nothing. He says in verse 2, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. You ever feel like that, like you need an answer for God and you're crying out to God and heaven is silent? That's where he's at right now. When God does respond The answer the prophet received was not what he was looking for. Sometimes God will answer us with an answer we don't want to hear. God responds that he will indeed do something about the evil that's running rampant. The nation of Judah had turned from the truth, and they started to do what is right in their own eyes. Very similar to what you've seen in America. God's response to that. And we've talked about this before, was that he was going to, you see this all throughout the Old Testament, he was going to remove his hand of protection from the nation. 
when he removed his hand, it thus gave permission for the enemy. A group known as the Chaldeans would come in and they would severely start to punish the people. Which the goal behind that is once the punishment started, the people would then turn back to God. They would repent from evil, thus God would restore his hand. But this is why God removes his hand. We start to go our own way, and his, his number one concern for us is the soul, not our flesh. Our number one concern is our flesh. His number one concern is our soul. He wants us to return from sin and turn back to him. And this is what it means when it says God is raising up the Chaldeans. He's removing his hand of protection, now giving the enemy permission to attack. Understand this. The nation could not fall when the hand of God was upon it. It could not fall. And I sit back and I wonder today if God is starting to remove his hand of protection from the United States. I would make the argument that we are no longer one nation under God, but that's just my argument. We are a nation divided, and now we see sin as widely accepted. I don't think he has yet, but could we be getting close? Only he knows, but that's not the topic today. So who were the Chaldeans? To understand what Paul is saying, you have to understand who the Chaldeans were, because when Paul quoted this, the Chaldeans no longer existed. They were conquered by Cyrus the Great, king of Persia in 539 B.C. After this time, the Chaldeans are never again referred to as a nation or even as an ethnic group. So why would Paul warn the believers in this crowd about a group of people that no longer existed? That doesn't make any sense. Well, there's a reason for it. The Chaldeans were known for their idol worship. They were highly violent people. They were intent on stealing land that was not theirs, expanding their kingdom, making, their, making them stronger, and they did it all by force. This group of people were about as wicked as you get. When Paul quotes this, the Chaldeans are of no threat. So what is he warning the people about? Why does he tell us to beware of a group of people that are no longer around? Well, the Chaldeans, they were enemies of God's people. Watch this. The biblical name Chaldea simply means as demons, as robbers. The root of the word means to lay waste or to destroy. The historical Chaldeans conquered land, they murdered and they robbed people. Their mission was to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So when Paul quotes this in Habakkuk, he is not referring to a physical enemy. He's referring to a spiritual enemy. He's telling us to beware of spiritual enemies who, like the Chaldeans, were focused on controlling dwelling places that didn't belong to them. In other words, he's talking about Satan and his demons. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life. This is Jesus speaking and have it abundantly. So Paul with urgency is telling the people in the crowd, believer, beware, lest the enemies of God come upon you. So let's talk about the enemies of God for just a moment because rest assured, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the enemies of God are going to come after you and they're going to try to keep you in bondage because if you are in bondage, you will be ineffective in winning others to Christ. 
We have nothing to fear because our God has defeated death, hell, and the grave. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We talked about that in week one. But we need to understand how our enemy operates so we can be better equipped and to stand firm, allowing us to move, keep moving forward. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, he's talking about forgiveness and he ends it by saying this, so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. He's talking about understanding our enemy, not fearing the enemy, but understanding the enemy and how he operates. There's an old saying that says, knowing your enemy is half the battle. You've probably heard that. In the physical sense, that's well, that's, 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 that's real when a nation's going to war. They, they want to understand their enemy, but it's true spiritually speaking as well. With that being said, Habakkuk chapter 1 is loaded with information regarding our spiritual enemy. Today I'm going to focus on just one and then part two of this message. We're going to circle back. We're going to talk about a few more. There's just too much here to cover in one message. Here's what I want you to see today. Verse 8. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Habakkuk says our enemy is fiercer than evening wolves. Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from you among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Remember, we talked about that earlier, people twisting the truth. But Paul isn't talking about actual wolves here. It's not telling them to go out and get a shotgun, guys, and get ready to defend yourself against a pack of wolves that's coming in. He's talking about demonic pressure. He's talking about the enemy of our souls. He said, they're going to come after you, so be on guard. He's telling this to the believers. So let's talk about the wolf. Before a wolf attacks, it will study and size up its prey to wait for just the right moment to make its move. When Satan came after Jesus in the desert, you might remember this if you know this, When he failed, it says Satan left him until a more opportune time. Habakkuk uses the term evening wolves. And to me, that's interesting. Because most people will tell you that they struggle the greatest when they're alone and nighttime is the worst. People that have lost a loved one will tell you that it is the nighttime hours that are the most difficult to get through. Nighttime is a vulnerable time for God's people. Satan loves to come in and oppress when the lights are off. I'm telling you, just to be real with you, my greatest anxiety always comes at night. I remember when we came to Green Bay and we were struggling with all that financial mess that we were in. As soon as the lights went off every night, my struggle intensified and became the greatest. It kept me up at night. I'd sit in bed and my heart would race. You know the night that I have the trouble, the most trouble sleeping? Saturday night, right before I preach. How convenient. That's not a coincidence. It's the evening wolf. And his mission is to keep you oppressed and in bondage so you stay tired and ineffective. And I have learned over the years, I'm trying to help you with this, that when the evening wolf strikes, and I think we can probably all relate to what I'm saying, the best thing that I have found to do is to simply worship God. 
Turn on worship music and begin to worship God. For me, I find it's the instrumental music that's the most effective But when I'm in this battle, but it might be different for you. Put in some earbuds, play it right from your phone. You can search instrumental Christian music and find a three-hour loop on YouTube. It's free. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 3 tells us to put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Psalm chapter 22 and verse 3 says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The word enthroned is from a Hebrew word that means sit, remain, or dwell. What does that mean? Praise ushers you into the presence of God. He dwells with those that worship him. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, chains are broken. I want to encourage you to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy to be praised. If something's going on in your life, turn on some worship music, lift your hands, and begin to worship. Because I'm telling you, it falls off. It melts away in his presence. It does for me. Look at Psalm chapter 107 and verse 13. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He led them from the darkness and deepest gloom. He snapped their chains. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he's done for them. For he broke down their prison gates of bronze. He cut apart their bars of iron. That's what worship does. Freedom. Freedom. But when you're in that place, you don't feel like worshiping. You feel like complaining. At least I do. Maybe you're different. I know when I'm in that place, man, at night I get angry and I'm like, here we go again. I'm tired. I need to get to some sleep and I can't sleep. Man, it's just a worship. Satan doesn't want you to worship because it melts, it, it takes care of it. Check this out. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14. We read the account of a king named Saul. Saul, when he started out, was steadfast after the things of God. But he began to disobey God. He began to go his own way. He started to do what was right in his own eyes. Look at this. This is uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse, starting in verse 14. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. That means God removed his hand of protection, now giving the enemy permission. Remember, we talked about that. Sin causes us to lose that hand of protection from God. And the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. That's the result of God removing his hand. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. So their solution is worship. He will play soothing music and it will soon be and you'll soon be able, be able to get well again. All right, Saul said, find someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He's also a fine-looking young man. I wonder why they put that in there. And the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son David the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul along with the, a young goat, a donkey, loaded with bread, a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much and David became his armor bearer. Verse 22, 
Then Saul sent word to Jesse asking, please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. That's the power of worship. It causes the tormenting spirit. It causes the evening wolf to flee. The evening wolf is watching and waiting on all of us. We have to learn how to fight it off when it attacks. None of us are immune from this. Get into God's presence and let him fight that battle for you. In Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. I encourage you, call on the good shepherd when you get in those moments, and he will come to your aid, and he will beat the snot out of that wolf with his staff. Psalm 23 and verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The staff of God will comfort you. It will protect you. God is with you. He says this in Psalm chapter 50 and verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. God will deliver you. Worship is how you defeat the evening wolf. Amen. Is that helping you? I hope that's helping you. That's, I tell you what, this, it, it's helped me so much. But here's the thing about the wolf. They don't just attack at night. They also attack during the day. Now listen to me. When a wolf is watching the sheep, he watches and he waits until he sees a sheep separate from the pack. Once the sheep is alone, he makes his move. He watches for the sheep on the fray. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks against all sound judgment. You see that? What that means is you're more than likely to do something foolish when you're in isolation. Your enemy knows this. The wolf knows this. And just like the wolf, he waits for these moments to leash his attack. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And verse 12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple, triple braided cord is not easily broken. He waits for the sheep on the fray. One of the worst things that you can do is isolate yourself from the people and from the house of God. Because you are the safest from the attack of the wolf when you are in the middle of the flock. Some of you need to knock some people over to get to the middle of the flock. All you have to do is look at 2020 to know how true this is. I don't have to sit up here and tell you stories of old and say this is, you know, what I think would happen. We've we seen this happen. We lived this. Look at what happened during the COVID lockdown. Many people became isolated. What's the result? What did we see? Depression through the roof. Anxiety through the roof. 
Mental health problems, through the roof. Domestic abuse, through the roof. Suicide, through the roof. Substance abuse, through the roof. I could keep going. Astronomically high numbers that we've never seen before is, is, is the stats that we're getting. It's crazy, but you didn't see that on the evening news. But this is the result of what happens when we isolate and we separate ourselves from the flock. There was a lady that once uh, was a part of this church very faithfully before COVID. Very faithful lady. She served a lot. Young lady. She hasn't been back to church, any church, since the lockdown. And the posts that I see on social media now, they just break my heart because she's, she's allowed vulgarities. I'd never, never, I'd never hear that from her before. But she allowed herself to sit out on the fray and the wolf came and took her. You know, that's why in September of 2020, when the cases started to skyrocket again, everything started shutting down. You probably remember that. I, I said, I, I can't do it. I can't go online only again. People need this. This is too important. There's something about meeting together. That's why we're told, do not forsake the assembling of the believers. It's because, it's because God does not want you on the fray. Because it's dangerous when you're on the fray. And it's when we say, oh, I can do this. I don't need to be around the people of God. That's called pride, and pride comes before the fall. And I've seen it too many times. I'm going to, I love you, Curtis. I'm going to bring Curtis up here, see him right here. I like Curtis. Amen. You see, I, I had people come up to me and they say, Pastor, please don't go online only again. I had people tell me I would rather die than go through that again. These were elderly people that were at highest risk. And that's what they told me. I'd rather die than go through that again. You see, some people, they have no support system. This is it. This is their family. So for three months, if you remember that, I limited what we did, but we kept services in person for those that needed to be here. There was no worship time. It was the most awkward time ever. I just got up here and preached, and then we just kind of hung out, and that was our service. We did that for three months. I think, maybe four. I don't even remember. I want to forget about it. <laughs> but the wolf studies and watches his prey. You better believe right now that the wolf is watching you. He's studying you to see when you're going to be the weakest, and it's that moment he's going to strike. He's waiting for an opportune time like he did with Jesus. Remember James chapter 1 and verse 13. We read this in part one of this series a couple weeks ago, and I'm just about done. And remember that when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Temptation comes from our own desires, and you better believe that Satan and the satanic kingdom know what your desires are. It's when you are alone, it's when you are isolated that he's going to flip that desire right in your direction. Happens every time. 
You just have to understand how this works. We're not to be ignorant of his, of his schemes. We're not to be ignorant of how he operates. You've got to understand that when you're isolated and you're alone and no one's around, those are the times that you're going to be tempted the most to start looking at stuff on your phone that you typically wouldn't look at. You're going to be tempted to maybe go to the cabinet and, 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 and grab a drink that you normally wouldn't grab or whatever. You, you, start, to get, you start to get down. You, started to, you start to get depressed. And so he's going to throw those at you at those moments when you're alone. The sheep on the fray, he's going to come after you and he's going to hit the hardest when you're at that, time, at that moment because you're the most vulnerable. And he's got a better chance of succeeding. And if you grab the bait, it will grow, as Scripture says, until it destroys you. This is not a game. I want to invite our worship team to come back up at this point. Isolating yourself for long periods of time is one of the worst things that you can do as a Christian. I want to encourage you, don't become a sheep that is stuck on the fray. Get yourself into the middle of the flock when, that, when the doors of the church are open. Get into the house of God. Men, get here for our Saturday morning breakfast that we do. Again, we don't have one this month. In August, we'll start up again. Get out to those once a month. Get around other guys that are going to lift you up and pray with you. Meet some people. Women, the same goes for you. There's a breakfast the second Saturday of every month. Get to these events. Get down here during the week and serve with people in our food pantry Ride the buses on Sunday mornings. There is no shortage of opportunities during the week. We have so much going on here during the week for outreach. There is no shortage of opportunities for you to get involved, to get yourself into the middle of the flock. If you allow yourself to get into the, onto the fray, you are going to become a casualty. I guarantee it. I have seen it too many times. And we think we can do it. This is your choice. You invite an attack from the wolf when you separate yourself from the flock. You guys can go ahead and start playing if you would like. Something soft in the background. So I want to encourage you to get as close to the shepherd as you can. Stay right next to God. He's the good shepherd. And the good shepherd has a staff to comfort you against the attack of the wolf. He's got the staff to defend you against the attack of the wolf. So this is how to defend against the attack of the wolf. This is what I've learned. Number one, you defend yourself against the attack of the wolf through worship. And number two, by staying close to the shepherd. I guarantee you these two things will keep you from the fangs of the wolf. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're going to close service today a little bit different than we typically do. We're going to close it with a time of worship. We're going to do one last song before we go. As we sing this song, I think it's the song Break Every Chain, I really want you to focus on God. Some of you in here, you're in the middle of the attack of a wolf right now. Your solution, worship, and run to the shepherd. Run to the shepherd. I want to encourage you as we worship to come down here to the front and worship God away from everyone else. Get out of your comfort zone. Come down here to the front and just worship. 
Run to the shepherd. If you're down here in the front, I want to come around, I'll pray with you. I want to encourage our prayer team to to do likewise. If you see someone down here in the front, be my guest to come down here and just pray for them. We, we, We won't ask you what's going on or what you need prayer for. We're just going to come up behind you and believe God for whatever you're whatever you're needing from God today. We want to believe God for your miracle. So we're going to spend some time in the presence of God this morning before we go. Could we go ahead and stand to our feet? The team's going to play. And as they play, I just want you to focus on God. I want you to focus on God. Spend some time in His presence today. I encourage you to come down to the front. And let's just worship. I'll come up here at the end and I'll close this out. Let's worship together this morning.